0: All right, well, who's happy to be here tonight? Uh, I get the joy of introducing guest speaker that will be with us tonight. I met Maddie. it was probably about three years ago. I was um, back at the last ministry. I was pastoring, and I didn't know who he was. I'd never met him, and uh, through a mutual friend, we ended up at lunch, and he's sharing the gospel with the waiter. And I'm like, man, who is this guy? We start talking, and my heart just started burning, and I was like, man, What are you doing tonight? And uh, my service was that night. I was like, and he's like, well, I'm flying out. And I was like, well, you wanna you wanna preach at my church for like? He's like, well, I fly out then. I maybe only do it maybe 10 or 15 minutes. I said that would be awesome. And uh, he came, prayed over some of the leaders in the church, preached for like 10, 15 minutes, blew the place up, and uh, everyone. I still have people that have come to me and said, I still remember things he said three years ago on that night, even though it was 10, 15 minutes. And uh, ever since then, I just became. really a fan of Maddie Montgomery and uh, got to follow his ministry and see what God's doing him, uh, using him to do all over the world. Uh, and so we uh, are blessed in Riverhouse that God has sent him here. I believe that this really is a divine appointment and that God has brought a man who has cultivated and stewarded uh, through his walk with Jesus just an incredible grace that reveals Jesus so beautifully and we uh, get the privilege of seeing the Jesus that he's carrying. And so uh, I would just ask everyone to stand and we can honor Maddie as he comes to preach God's word
1: tonight. Hi, everybody. I I feel like um, the introduction is important, so you don't think I'm just some random truck driver who got lost and wandered into your church. Um, so to, but to tell you a little bit, a little bit about me, I am um, I'm God's son, and I'm Candace's husband, and I'm a dad to Kai, Caleb, and Carver, these three incredible little boys. Kai's seven, Caleb is five, and Carver is four months. He's still squishy, and he's awesome. Uh, and, uh, my wife and I have been married. It'll be 10 years in January. Uh, and it's, it's so far so good. We, (laughs) we love it. She, um, she's just this incredible woman. When, uh, when I met her, I, I was what I call a theoretical Christian. Uh, I had a concept. of your Bible, so I did that, and you're supposed to follow God, and I had gone to church, and so I knew that you're supposed to read your Bible, so I did that, and you're supposed to talk about Jesus, so I did that, and you're supposed to say prayers, so I did that, but I met this girl who was this wild, fiery worshiper, and uh, I don't think you understand what I mean, so she would ache. Her heart would ache while she was at work. She was a banker, and, and she would sit at, at, at work all day, like longing to be able to just give Jesus her undivided attention, and so uh, there there was a, a time when she um, told me the story of something she and her best friend did. They wanted to go to their church one night. There wasn't a service. They just wanted to go and turn the lights off and, and crank up the PA and turn on a couple hours of worship music and just dance and sing to Jesus, just the two of them. And, uh, and their pastor wasn't available to unlock the church for them, so they thought, well, we can't let that stop us. So they went and parked her car in a Walmart parking lot and turned the stereo all the way up and danced to Jesus in a Walmart parking lot at 10 p.m. one night, Um And so I I heard this girl telling me these stories, and I thought, I want you to raise my kids. (laughs) So right now, I'm living a dream come true. Uh, And she taught me me to worship, and and I found that, that the entirety of the Christian life can really be summed up in just that one word, worship. I think that we, so often, we try to divide it up, right, that we have to be kind, and we have to be influential, and we have to be, missions conscious and we have to be effective in evangelism and we have to be generous financially and we have to be committed to prayer and we we have to be studious regarding scripture but the truth is all of that falls into the category of worship and if we cannot become worshipers we'll never become evangelists and if we cannot become worshipers we'll never become world changers we need to understand that that just recently i I was sharing the gospel with, uh, with a, an atheist in St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, we're having this conversation. We're going back and forth. And he's explaining to me that he's a good person. He's explaining to me, you know, that there's in, in the, the same faith that he thinks I'm a part of, he says there are thieves and rapists and murderers. And I'm, I'm not doing any of those things. I don't lie. I'm pretty honest. I'm generous. And he's explaining to me his morality. And I realize as he's talking that I think we've done the world a great disservice by equating Christian living with morality. We've we've made all of our fights about Christian morality and, and we go to war about gay marriage and we go to war about you know transgender bathrooms and, and we go to war about about abortion, and and, and we demand that our culture adhere to the lordship of a king they don't recognize. And so all they know from us is the Christian moral standard and they think that when I say you should become a part of the family of God what I'm saying to them is you should make your moral standard my moral standard listen we need to understand that we as Christians don't have an exclusive we don't have exclusive access to morality we as Christians have exclusive access to God When I invite people to follow my Jesus, I'm not inviting them to live an upright life. That's an inevitable byproduct. I'm inviting them to come into intimate, personal relationship with the creator of the universe. And so if, if we cannot be worshipers, meaning people that see and respond to the beauty of King Jesus... I think it's inevitable that whatever else we do, in the context of what we call the Christian life, will will fall flat before it even begins. So let me pray, um, Father. I, I just I love you, Father. We love you. We don't want to come here and just talk about you, God. We want to be with you in this place. We thank you, Father. That that. In Christ and through faith in him, we can approach you with freedom and confidence. So we we say yes to that invitation. And we approach you this afternoon. We say, Father, would you shake us? Would you shake us, God, out of complacency? Would you shake us out of indifference? God, shake us out of apathy. Shake us out of compromise, God. Come on. Shake us out of the slumber of worldly satisfaction, God. Would you break us? Would you break us if you have to, Father? Rend our hearts so we can receive your dream for our life. So we can receive your dream for our city. So we can receive your dream for our nation and our generation, God. Would you ruin us for anything less than everything Jesus died for us to have? Amen. So, so I want to tell you a bit first, I think, about how I got here. <laughs> um. I started in ministry by becoming the vocalist for a metal band, which, as you might be able to guess, is a weird way to start in ministry. (laughs) See, most people, I think, would go to Bible school, and you get a degree in pastoral studies, and then you get a job as a youth pastor, and then you get a job as a youth pastor at a bigger church, and then... You leave that church to go be a senior pastor at a small church, and then you leave that church to go be a senior pastor at a big church, and then you've made it, right? Then you've climbed the ladder in ministry. You write a couple books, get a couple social media followers, and you're set. You got it. And so uh, God called me in in a different way, and I ended up saying yes to moving to western Iowa and joining a band that was not signed to a record label and nobody had ever heard of uh, called For Today. And, um, and I, I, I said to the, guy, uh, to, to the guys in the band before I came, I said, I'll join your band on two conditions. Condition one is that we can do a Bible study together every day that we're on tour. And condition two is you'll let me preach the gospel every night during our set. Uh, and they said, sure, seems harmless enough. <laughs> and boy, were they wrong. Nine years, several thousand shows, seven albums that topped Billboard charts. Uh, after Billboard charts, music videos, uh, magazine covers, award shows, everything you can imagine. Later, and uh, and we in 2016 had done so much more. Than I think any one of us could ever have, have imagined in 2007 when we were playing a show in San Antonio for two people. Um, and what happened is, is we showed up to these shows at the beginning and, um, and I would pour my heart and soul into these shows. We, we, we committed early on to play for an audience of one. That if nobody notices what we do, we believe God does. And so we want to give him our absolute best. So we show up to this first show in San Antonio, Texas, two whole people, and we load in all of our gear and we sound check and we pour our heart and soul out for 35 minutes and then we get done and, you know, the show kind of an awkward applause when there's only two people in the crowd. Um. And then what we get done with the show, and we just hang out for the rest of the night. And that night, two people gave their lives to Jesus. And, uh, and so we, we, we were implored by God really, uh, really early on to make sure that we did not despise the process. Because if all we ever did was do a tour or two, release an album or two, and then go home and grow up and get real jobs, um, that would have been fine. And we had to be okay with that. But then... The crowd started coming, the albums started selling, record labels started calling, and, um, and we had the incredible opportunity to spend almost 10 years traveling all around the world playing our music for hundreds of thousands, millions of people, and preaching the gospel in some of the darkest places in our nation. We would stand, because of the kind of music that we played, we didn't go on tour with Chris Tomlin and Jeremy Camp, you know? <laughs> We, we would get invited on tour with atheist bands, satanic bands that had the devil on their t-shirts, pentagrams and stuff, and, uh, and we would play right after those bands, and they would be up on stage, having everybody literally hold their middle fingers up to the sky, and then, uh, and then we would come on stage and preach the gospel to the same crowd. <laughs> and every night, every night, we got mixed reactions. As I'm sure you can imagine, right? And, and we'd have, we'd have a guy, we'd have people spitting at us, throwing things at us, right next to people standing with their hands raised in surrender as tears rolled down their cheeks, and they found hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, we saw people set free in a moment of of addiction, depression, thoughts of suicide, things that had plagued them for years would literally melt off of them in the presence of God. That would show up in a nightclub in a bar, in a a room full of a thousand drunk atheists. And I learned really early on this one simple truth that I think we in the modern church have a hard time believing, and that is this. The gospel really is powerful. And I think we have been duped into believing that We need the gospel and a really good worship band, or we need the gospel and a degree in theology, or we need the gospel and the the, the right lights to set the mood and the right building to meet in and, and the right context to be able to present it. We need the gospel and somebody who's at absolute rock bottom before we preach it to them. We think that the stage has to be set just right for the gospel to ever even be A little bit powerful in someone's life. But Romans 16 says that the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. And if that is true, then that means that the way I present the gospel is not the power of God that brings salvation. That's good news. That's good news for for somebody who made a living literally screaming the gospel into a microphone. (laughs) That's good news for anybody that maybe feels a little bit unqualified to be used by God. It's good news for anybody that feels a little bit awkward maybe starting a conversation with a stranger about their eternity. The good news is that it doesn't depend on you. It never did and it never will. That it really doesn't. It really doesn't depend on how persuasive or charismatic or gifted you are. It doesn't depend on how cool your clothes are or how how good your breath smells. It, It really doesn't. When I'm drowning in a river. I don't care what the person looks like who throws me a life raft. So, you know, I noticed early on in our band, we were playing a concert in Virginia. And uh, and during this concert, I uh, was preaching the gospel like I had hundreds of other times. And in the middle of, of this message, it's a really simple message. I wasn't talking down to anybody. I wasn't attacking anybody. I was saying there's only hope in Jesus. And if you're in captivity, if you're in bondage, if if you're losing ground and your life is slipping out of your hands, I'm telling you there's hope in Jesus. And, um, and this girl standing in, in the front row of, of the show begins to literally growl at me. And then she begins to scream obscenities. And I mean, I'm talking... Six feet away from my face and uh, in a room full of strangers. And she's screaming, shut up, shut up. This isn't church. We don't want to hear it. And she's cursing me out while I'm preaching the gospel. And, um, and I finish and I look her in the eye and I say, I love you. And then we, we play our music and she, goes, and she goes right back to like dancing to our music. And we finish our set, and I, I never see her again. But then I get an email through my website the next day. And, uh, um, and this girl, she, she, she writes, and she says, hey, I just wanted to write you a quick message and apologize for the way I acted when you talked about your faith yesterday. I don't know what could have possessed me to do that. And I said, it's interesting you'd use that word. (laughs) Isn't it weird that I could have stood on stage and talked about Buddha and you would have applauded me for it? I could have stood on stage and talked about the Democratic Party and you would have applauded me for it. I could have stood on stage and talked about my... Muslim upbringing, and you would have talked about how brave I was to stand up for Islam in a nation that seemed so opposed to it. But when the name of Jesus came out of my lips, something inside of you could not stay hidden. And, uh, and I said, it's because there's not authority in the name of Buddha. There's not authority in the name of Muhammad. There is authority in the name of King Jesus. And King Jesus, the ruler of heaven and earth, is after you. A couple days later, I get a message back from her and she says, this is going to sound really weird. Uh, she said, I, had, I read your email and didn't know what to say back. And I, just, I read it before I went to bed one night. And I, I went to bed that night and I had a dream that I was in a burning building laying on a bed asleep, and that there were shadows around me holding me down to my bed while the the building around me burned. She said, I woke up the next day horrified, feeling like there was no hope in my life. And she said, I went to bed the next night. She said, the next night, I had a dream that started the same. I was laying in my bed, and the room around me was burning. But then I looked, and there was an open window. And, uh, And she said, I went, and I stood in the window, and I looked down, and I saw Jesus standing at the bottom of the window asking me to jump into his arms. And she said, I, don't, I know this is weird, and I've never been to church. She said, I've been reading the Satanic Bible for the last six months. And, um, and she said, I know that those dark figures that were holding me to my bed came into my life because of that book. She said, but I think that Jesus has made a way for me to come out. And I said, I think you're right, sister. <laughs> And, uh, and so she, she's able, she was able to get, to get born again and to get plugged into a church. And, and the beautiful thing about this is that it wasn't because of my persuasive speech. I didn't beat her in an argument about the historical validity of the Bible. It wasn't because of my prowess in apologetics. It wasn't because of a college degree that I had or because of even a sermon that I preached. It was because I just, I exalted Jesus in my workplace. Playing music, it wasn't my ministry, it was my job. I was a professional musician for 10 years. And as a professional musician, I refused to go into work without giving glory to the one that gave me the skill to do my work. And I just, listen, I, for what it's worth, I want to give you permission to do the same. But I also want to give you caution as you do it. And I, want to, I, I feel I need to give you this caution uh, as I do it, if you're going to exalt Jesus in your workplace, you're going to have to be irreplaceable. You're going to have to be so good at your job that they cannot function without you. And this is, listen, we need to understand that the system of the world, what the Bible calls Babylon, God's great offense with Babylon is not that the Babylon demands that you abandon your faith, it's that you hide it. It's that you compromise it. Let, let me explain it like this. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. These three boys are told by Nebuchadnezzar. It's you, I know that you're Jewish slaves, and you were brought here against your will, and you have your own God named Yahweh that you serve. But there's going to be one time every day when the music plays. I want you to just to stop that stuff. And worship this, uh, this image that we had built of me. You can be a part of whatever religion you want. In fact, I respect it. I admire it. I'll accommodate your, 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 your willingness to, uh, uh, I'll accommodate your desire to worship the God of your homeland. I'll accommodate your longing to, to, uh, to, to, to ascribe to your own religion. But just, just make sure that you include what we do in with it. In the whole nine years that I was in the secular music industry, no one ever came to me and demanded that I abandon my faith. But I lost track of how many hundreds of conversations I had that went like this. Man, it's cool that you guys believe in Jesus, but not everybody in the venue does. Maybe just tone it down just a little bit. Maybe don't say that Jesus is the only way to hope. You know, maybe just say that he's the way you found. Maybe, maybe just say that it's what you believe, right? Maybe on your next album you can turn the lyrics down just a little bit because we don't want to alienate people, right? Because we would never want to trade influence for truth, would we? Oh, God. Let's, can I just preach to you for a second? I had something I was going to read. We'll see if we get there. Um. I've got a great friend who's an awesome pastor in, in Nashville. I was talking with him recently and he said something to me that, that shook me. He said, he said, if the primary deception of our parents' generation was the prosperity gospel, meaning that the prosperity gospel is fundamentally the idea that the, the evidence that God's hand is on a ministry is that they have a lot of money. And if a ministry doesn't have a lot of money, then it must mean that God is not with them. Now, that's, that's wrong. It's a doctrine of devils. It's false. It's not, it's not true, right? But it's, it was a prevailing deception in, in my mother's time. He said if the, if the prevailing deception in our parents' generation was the prosperity gospel, then the prevailing deception in our time is the popularity gospel. It's the idea That the evidence of God's involvement in the life of an individual or a ministry is their popularity. And I have watched in the music industry and in the ministry. Person after person after person. Leader after leader after leader. Trade truth for influence. And so I implore you this afternoon. Be better than that. You don't have to trade truth for influence. I'm telling you, God has a plan to reach this generation, and that plan does not include your compromise. That plan does not require... You to jump through the hoops of the world and play the game that the world expects you to play. I'm telling you, God has a way to advance you. God has a way to position you. God has a way to prosper your family. God has a way to sustain and satisfy you and position you to bring transformation to your culture. And it does not include your compromise. You don't have to compromise. Jesus never compromises with the enemy. I don't know who who got it into our heads that Jesus approaches warfare like, well, you know, I may lose the battle, but in the end, I'm going to win the war. I think, listen, I think it's time in our generation we quit settling for moral victories. Well, you know, yeah, my kids went to hell, but at the end, it's going to be okay. I'm going to fly away, and then everything's going to be fine. Well, yeah, my wife died of cancer, but, uh, you know, she's in a better place now. And we settle for moral victories... Because we have an idea of God as being far away thinking happy thoughts about us. But the God we read about in scripture is a God that is so intimately involved in our lives that he is actively looking for ways to rescue us from the enemies that have surrounded us. Listen, I want, my story is, is plagued with disappointment. My father died in front of me, of cancer when I was eight years old. My dad, that's my best friend in the whole world, my protector, my provider, the one that is supposed to be a picture of what God is like. I saw him lose 150 pounds, laying in a bed without the strength to even roll himself over or, or get up to go to the bathroom, begging for another bite of food to eat as my mom would spoon feed him until the day that he died. And then my mom slips into devastating depression, suicide attempts, addiction. And I, at eight years old, I'm sort of left to figure it out on my own for the next 10 years. And, uh, and then I have this encounter with Jesus at 19 years old. And I, I say, all I am forever is yours. And, uh, and I, he ends up bringing me into this band and we start traveling and, and then I start doing something really crazy. I start reading the Bible and believing what it says. That's a reckless thing to do if you want to be popular in church. <laughs> and so I start coming into church and I start thinking, yeah, this guy is cheating on his wife. And uh, this lady <laughs> ah, never mind. Okay. So I, <laughs> I start coming into church and I start realizing that what we're living is not what Jesus died for us to live. And, uh, and, and I think we have all maybe in, in one way or another come to that crisis of conscience where we look at the way the church looks and then we look at the way the, the culture looked that Jesus established and we think these two don't measure up. And I've seen countless thousands of people say, well, then that must mean there's not a God. And they walk away from the church. But I want to invite you, if you see a problem in the church, to fix it. Can I just, let me just give you some fatherly advice. If there's a a problem and you see it, fix it. I've got a seven-year-old son that's learning this same concept right now. If, uh, If your brother is playing with a toy that you want to play with, find a solution to it and leave me alone. <laughs> is this okay? I love you. <laughs> so I, uh, I have a unique privilege of being here this afternoon with uh, some of the coolest people in the world. I've got my whole ministry team, just about my whole ministry team from back home in Mobile, Alabama, with me out on the road right now. These incredible gorgeous, anointed, young women and men of God. And, uh, um, and w- we are collectively um, part of a, a ministry called Awakening Evangelism. And what we do is, um, essentially, we, we do our best to give the tools to the body of Christ to be able to communicate the gospel effectively. One of the ways we do that is, we have an online school of evangelism, evangelistic culture globally. folks, so materials, training materials. We help to kind of create an evangelistic culture globally so that you can hear what God is doing in Scotland and Australia and South Africa and Brazil and, and just be in inspired by the stories of other regular people that are trying to carry the gospel into the world around them. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's interesting as, as we do this because people take our... Uh, people join our online school of evangelism thinking that I'm going to spend eight weeks running them through, you know, all right, go start a conversation with this and then say this after that. And I'm going to indoctrinate them with a the script. But the beautiful thing about the advancement of the kingdom is that it was designed to never be able to work with a script. It was designed to draw us into a place of dependency on King Jesus. It was intended specifically to never work today the way it worked yesterday or last month or last year or last generation. (laughs) And so we depend, I think, heavily as people who have a heart for souls, we depend heavily on... The lordship of Jesus we depend heavily on the authority of Jesus we depend heavily on the leadership of Jesus and I just I, I just as we were worshiping felt Holy Spirit bring me to this to this place and, and I, I just want to read this passage it's in in uh, Revelation chapter 1 um, starting in verse 4 and this is Revelation the book of Revelation is written by John who describes himself in his gospel the Gospel of John as the disciple whom Jesus loved people call him theologians call him in history John the beloved and, and so he writes from a unique perspective of desperate obsession and adoration with Jesus and I, I think you can learn a lot from people that have that perspective so I really like I really like John and I like the way he writes in Revelation 1 starting in verse 4 it says, Uh, It says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Amen. So this is, this is the way John describes the one he loves, Jesus. And I think evangelism in its most basic form is just describing the one we love, right? It's just describing the beauty of Jesus. And so John, as he is writing this description of, of who Jesus is, as he's introducing Jesus, he is helping answer for us the question... Of who Jesus is. Because that ultimately I think is the question that our generation needs answered more than any other question. More than the question of how are we going to fix the economy. More than the question of what are we going to do about illegal immigrants in our country. More than the question about who's going to win, Democrats or Republicans. More than any other question, the prevailing question plaguing our generation is who is Jesus? Is he just a storybook character? Is he just an idea to be debated? Is he a teacher from a long time ago? Is he a myth or a superstition? Who really is he? And I love that John starts by describing him as this. uh, Grace to you, he says in verse 4, and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Do you realize that's out of order? That's always bothered me. It bothered me for years. Because he should say grace to you and peace from him who was and is and is to come. And that's how we sing it when we put it in songs, but that's not the way John writes it. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come. And I think there's something beautiful about the revelation that John had about this idea that if we are going to know anything about God, we have to know that God is right now. My spiritual father said for years, he said, the spirit of religion will always acknowledge what God once did and what God will do, but, he never, but it never acknowledges what God is doing right now. The spirit of religion, it acknowledges that once Jesus died on a cross for your sins. And it will acknowledge that someday he will come again and he'll judge the nations of the earth. But it has no idea and will block you from having any idea about what God is doing right now. But John says, if you're going to know him, the first thing you have to know is that he's on the move today. That he is existent, active, able in our lives right now to save and to transform us in the world around us. And so he describes him as the one who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood. To him who loved us and washed us From our sins in his blood. That is the gospel. To him who loved us and washed us. In our sins with his blood. To him, hallelujah. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood. What if we really believed that we were forgiven? What if we really lived free from shame? Free from even a conscious awareness of our own fallen nature? What if we were so washed in the blood of Jesus that the shame of our past could no longer be like a shackle around our leg every time we try to walk into the glory of our future? He describes this, him as being the one who loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood. Friend, you. I've, for years, I heard old Baptist people say, well, brother, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And I can't help but wonder, which is it? Are you a sinner or have you been saved by grace? Because if you've been washed in the blood of Jesus, that makes you innocent in the eyes of God. And I would never want to say anything about myself that is in disagreement with the Father. I don't want to give myself an identity that differs from the identity that he... All right. Let's keep going. And so he does, it doesn't stop. It feels good to be forgiven, doesn't it? But he didn't stop at this, at that. He didn't stop at forgiveness. He continues on. And it says, and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Listen, I need you to understand that God's dream for your life is not that the blood of Jesus would come and unlock your prison door and you'd spend the rest of your life dancing in the cell thanking God for the fact that you could walk out into freedom if you wanted to. I believe God's plan for your life is that you bust out of the prison cell of shame and you would come into the promise of freedom, glory. And we come to a place where we can be functional as both kings and priests unto His God and Father. What does that look like, right? I think we we so often tell people with our... Uh, maybe, maybe we imply with our teaching as, as leaders in the church that you've got to choose sacred work or secular work. You've got to choose a calling in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. And if you have a calling out of the kingdom, then that must mean that the only impact your calling can have is to make a bunch of money so you can give it to your church. As a guy that works in the church, I have no problem with you giving money to the church. <sighs> Feel free to donate at maddymontgomery.com. <laughs> but I, uh, but we need to understand that there, for the redeemed children of the living God, there is no work. There is no God-ordained work that is ever secular. There is no God-ordained work that is ever anything less than a holy assignment from heaven. Whether you pastor a church of 100,000 people or you mop floors at Walmart, if it's where God has put you, it's where God has put you on purpose. And what you do there, what you do there, because every job carries with it a sphere of influence. Every job with it uh, every job carries with it a measure of dominion and the way you steward that dominion is what defines you as a king He's made us to be kings and priests unto our God and if you steward that dominion in such a way as to connect people to the one that created them that makes you a priest and so we have this tremendous opportunity to not shy away from influence, but to steward influence, to bring the Lordship of Jesus, uh, to, to, such a, to bring the revelation of the Lordship of Jesus to such an extent that he and his will would be made manifest in our sphere of influence. This is what he died for. This is the heart of Jesus that John explains to us in Revelation chapter 1. And so he, he continues on and he says to him, be, be, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want you, we have to, I was explaining, I was having a debate with somebody the other day about eschatology. About the end times and what it would look like. And he said, why do you believe what you believe? And I won't get into that because it's, it's not exciting for anybody but me. <laughs> um, but, but the reason I said the reason I, I, I believe what I believe is because I believe one very simple truth and that truth is Jesus reigns I, I absolutely reject any theology that tries to convince me that Jesus will reign someday but he doesn't reign right now we have to Because if we, listen, we are coming up right now out of, I believe, an an age that spanned several generations in the church in which the prevailing idea is that someday Jesus might reign, but right now you're on your own. But we have this incredible opportunity to bring the lordship of Jesus, the revelation of the lordship and the love of Jesus to such an extent that that would become the prevailing idea. And that when we get to present the gospel, we don't have to present a gospel that's based on speculation or ideology or history. We get to present a gospel that, like Paul said to the Corinthians, is built on the the spirit and the power of God. And so I, I just begin to ask, could I just get somebody to come help me? Spirit fingers. <laughs> so I just begin to ask God, who is Jesus? Who, who is Jesus? How do you describe the indescribable one? And uh, and I, I I sat in the spirit and I, I just began to write. I just began to write my best, meager attempt at answering that question. Who is Jesus? And I began to write, he is the one who is and who was and who is to come. The eternal, death-defeating, hell-conquering, sin-bearing, revolutionary king-priest. He is the only begotten Son of the living God, the physical manifestation of God's glorious dream for humanity. He is the center of human history, the answer to the question, why are we here? He was the spot fire in His eyes to take for the sin of the world, and He is the roaring lion returning soon with fire in His eyes to take His rightful place, enthroned above every king and every authority of every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. He is the singular desire of every heart, the subconscious longing of every sinner, and the overwhelming satisfaction of every saint. He is good news to those who are being saved and bad news to those who are not. He is the law. He is the judge. He is the defense attorney and He is the executioner. He is just and He is merciful. He is love personified, perfection manifested, power demonstrated and glory revealed. He is the lover of my soul, the fulfillment of every worthwhile dream I've ever had. He is perfect love and He is eternal truth. He is the firstborn over all creation, the firstborn among many brethren and the firstborn from among the dead. He is our invitation to holiness as the physical expression of God's righteous standard. He is the door into glory and He is the only key that can open it. He is my only source of hope, help, or shelter and He is more than sufficient any time and every time. Whether you see Him or not, whether you know Him or not, He is alive, He is glorious, He is Jesus, and He is worthy of it all. Listen, would you stand up on your feet with me this afternoon? Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Oh, I thank you. Listen, I just... God, I just have the the overwhelming sense that what Yahweh is doing in this church is coming to what what He's calling your finest hour. This moment of destiny, this defining moment for this community of people, Inside of the greater community of people that you occupy right now. And I'm telling you, the key that will unlock the destiny Jesus died for this company to have is the simple revelation of the Lordship of Jesus. That Jesus is the King of cancer. Jesus is the king of drug addiction. Jesus is the king of racism. Jesus is the king of depression. Jesus is the king of suicide. Jesus is the king of false religion. Jesus is the king of sexual perversion. We have to understand that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is king. Listen. If the Son has set you free, you no longer have any obligation to sin. You don't have to answer when sin comes calling. You don't have to answer when apathy comes calling. You don't have to answer when indifference comes calling. I'm telling you, King Jesus sits enthroned above every other power. And there is no other authority in heaven or on earth or under the earth that can stand in his presence. What if we lived like this? What if we lived like what I'm saying is true? I'm telling you, we would turn the world upside down. So just lift lift your hands with me. Oh, Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have not left us on our own here. Thank you that right now, right now, you are bringing every enemy under the feet of Jesus in our lives. I thank you, Father, that you're bringing right now the enemy of divorce under the feet of the people in this room. You're bringing the enemy of pornography under the feet of the people in this room. You're bringing the enemy of depression and compromise under the feet of the people in this room. Father, I thank you that King Jesus now arises to go to war against every enemy that has ever come against us. And when Jesus goes to war, no enemy stands a chance. I declare in this company of people that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And the fullness of their freedom would be the great trophy for which he fights. I just want you to look at Him. I want you to look at Him. We have to get to a place where we don't need a preacher to drag us by the hand or we don't need words on the screen to find the words to describe Him. I want you to just behold Him. Just look at Him. Meditate on who He is. If you find yourself in this place and and you realize this, this afternoon that that you're still in a bondage, that you're still in bondage that Jesus died for you to be free from. I'd invite you to come forward. Come forward. we love to lay hands on you. I believe there's 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 power in agreement. If you realize this afternoon that Jesus is the Lord of the cosmos, but he's not the Lord of your secret life. He's not the Lord of your thought life. He's not the Lord of your finances. He's not the Lord of, of your body. And you want to bring your reality into into alignment with the Lordship of Jesus. One of the, one of the young, amazing fireballs on my team is going to come I'll lay hands on you. I believe God is going to set you free right now. I believe God's going to set you free right now. For those of you, for those of you that right now are living the testimony of the freedom that comes by way of the Lordship, the, the, the involvement of King Jesus, I invite you to just stand in awe of Him take however long you need to, stand in awe, stand in amazement of Him. Behold Him in His beauty this afternoon. Let Him grip your heart and captivate you again like He did on that first day. Remember, remember, remember. Listen, we're going to stay in this moment for as long as we need to in this moment for as long as we need to. I'm going to do something real weird but I feel like we're we're stepping into a new dimension right now and I don't just mean by way of instruction I mean by way of inheritance. And so if we come into a new place we're going to have to do things in a new way and so I'm going to preach a different message in the next service, a totally different message in the next service than I did in this one. And so if you want to, if you want to do something real weird and stay for that, I'll be here. I won't ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do. Um, It's going to be totally different, but I think it's going to build on the foundation that we laid in this one. And so let's just, let's have fun. Let's break the rules a little bit and see what God will do. I think God honors hunger. The Bible says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for more preaching because they will be filled. Something like that. (laughs) So listen, I just invite you to stay in this atmosphere. Stay in this flow. If you are done, if you're full, I'd rather you you leave happy than stay mad, right? So you you are as dismissed as you need to be. You can be free. Do whatever you got to do. If you have other responsibilities, that's totally fine. Nobody will hold it against you. But I'm excited. I'm excited about what God is doing right now. I'm excited about what He's going to continue to do in this atmosphere because. Bible says where Jesus, where the Son of Man is lifted up, He will draw all men unto Himself. And I believe Jesus is getting lifted up in these lives like never before. He's becoming exalted in this place. And as Jesus is exalted, He's going to begin to draw. He's going to begin to draw. He's drawing people out of captivity, out of complacency, out of exhaustion, out of deception, out of distraction right now. He's drawing people out of oppression and captivity into the glorious liberty intended for the sons of God right now. Right now, we thank you, God, for your power. Thank you, God, for your power. Thank you, God, for your power on display in this place tonight. Oh, Abba, we love you. I declare over you that Jesus wins. That whatever the battle is that was raging inside of you or around you when you walked through these doors, I declare Jesus wins. I prophesy that Jesus wins that battle. That Jesus wins that battle. That Jesus wins every time.